Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Elias Chappellis, Avery Frank, and David Stokes from Show Me Institute. So Elias, we're in the first week of the session. Not a ton of news to talk about yet. Maybe next week we'll have some movement when people are listening to this. But one issue that we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years is Medicaid, Medicaid expansion with the COVID crisis. The state of emergency made it so that the eligibility rolls couldn't be updated, but that's all about to change later this year, right? Right. Yeah. One of the very few good things about uh, the congressional year end spending bill was that uh, the federal government has finally decided in the uh, COVID emergency, which means that uh, states are going to be able to start checking whether people on the state's Medicaid rolls are actually eligible to receive services. And this is a really big deal for Missouri because state Medicaid rolls have increased for 35 consecutive months now. And so when um, back in March of 2020, the state's Medicaid program had fewer than 900,000 people on the program. Now, that sounds like a lot of people. But then when you look at today, we're at almost 1.5 million people in a state of only a population of only 6 million. You know, the um, enrollment is just going crazy. And what the reason this is such a big deal is essentially that um, estimates out there are that maybe upwards of 30, 40 percent of the people on Missouri's Medicaid program right now might not actually be eligible because of, um, you know, just changing of circumstances, whether they um, because how this COVID, how this COVID stuff worked, I guess there's, I should start there. How this COVID funding worked was essentially saying that if someone enrolled um, over the last three years, uh, the state cannot remove them from the rules unless they went and asked the state if they, um, you know, wanted to be removed. And so what happens with Medicaid a lot is someone will say lose their job, get on Medicaid, and then, you know, they'll go try to find a job. And a lot of this stuff might have made some sense in early 2020, but people are back to work. I, I think the jobs numbers today were, um, you know, we're at essentially one of the lower um, unemployment rates in in history. And so it was time to get back to normal. Um, the federal government wasn't ending the COVID emergency. And so um, now we're finally going to get a chance to start going through these rules. But I, I would, um, you know, put out a little caution there that it's actually not going to be super easy for the state to just say, OK, well, here's, um, you know, the getting people off of Medicaid is not actually very easy. The state has to start a very long process now, starting on April 1st which is going back through and checking everyone on the program's um, income, essentially, checking to see whether they are eligible. And that's not necessarily very easy. So though, so I'm expecting some bumps along the way, but it's very, um, it's a very good move that Missouri is going to get to start and the federal government is going to start pulling back some of their, um, what I would say, over generous COVID relief funds, getting Missouri back on a more sustainable Medicaid program. And I, and I hope that the legislature is supportive this year of, uh, the state's Medicaid agency, if they need some additional support in processing these applications, because you're um, uh, just to throw out of not too many numbers, but just sort of an idea here. If, if the estimates are correct, that there's roughly 300,000 people or 30, 40 percent of the state's Medicaid program are ineligible. That's talking about the state possibly spending 150, 200 million dollars a month on Medicaid that they shouldn't be. And that's a really big deal. I think it's wonderful that we're finally going to be able to to enforce these eligibility requirements. But I'm, it's a little bit concerning to me, though, because if if this expands further and they start checking eligibility for veterans benefits from the Crimean War, let's just say I'd be in a, I'd be in a lot of trouble here. <laughs> you, 
You recite Charge of the Light Brigade in one, one, one karaoke bar in Sular. The next thing you know, you're getting checks from London. Well, you need to make sure that your contact information is up to date with the state, David. They will uh, be sending you a notice. So, Elias, you talked about going through the rolls. I know last year, uh, one of the things that the governor did is he raised the minimum wage for state employees because they were having some problem with retention and recruitment of state employees. When you talk about going through rolls, is it really uh, – because I know there's other states that have um, made bigger strides than Missouri has in automation, but uh, – is it really just state employees trying to track down people on the rolls and manually update their income at this point? Uh, in some cases it is, but uh, hopefully there are areas and I, let me, let me start over there. There are definitely some areas where the state's um, different um, services. So whether that be food stamps, um, you know, other welfare programs where people would have registered their income with the state that the state's um, computer systems can kind of look at, you know, this determination of income, because prior to COVID, um, state welfare programs were essentially supposed to be checking back with enrollees at least every 12 months to see what their income is. Um, and that's something that's been stopped. And one of the things that um, Missouri's received some um, criticism for is that over uh, the past three years, the state has stopped checking people's income. Now, I, I realize I say the federal government barred them from checking, but what the federal government was doing was barring the state from removing people from the rolls. So technically, Missouri could have been keeping track of people's income. Um, but uh, as with a lot of things in Missouri's IT, that was a step that is a little bit more effort than the already, you know, I would say over overworked state staff was able to do. So we're a little bit behind. And so there's a lot of people that um, the only way you're going to be able to get a hold of them is through the mail and that's why there's um the state is now issuing um you know there's going to be stuff in the news they're issuing statements they're trying to tell everyone they can in every way possible to update their addresses so they can receive mail um and then hopefully there are even other avenues but as we've discussed on this podcast previously uh, the state is not known for having the best IT system. So there are areas where you think there'd be communication between programs, whether that be, you know, unemployment, um, you know, food stamps, stuff like that. The The communication doesn't always happen, so you can't assume it, but there should be some ways that aren't uh, mail, but I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. So finally, the checks begin on, uh, the eligibility checks begin on April 1st. It'll take some time before we see how this impacts the roles, correct? Maybe it'll the end of the year next year how long before uh you get an idea of how many people are added or fall off the rolls uh, that's going to take a while the, the state has some time they have about a year um after april 1st to kind of start going through these roles and the federal government will be sort of uh winding down its additional um, medicaid funds from covid relief so missouri has to check you know at least 1.4 million people's uh, eligibility so it's going to take a while but I would assume by the end of the year we'll have an idea, um, but it's not going to be it's not going to be until well into 2024 until we um, can kind of see the um, depths of this. Because I I don't know if you remember back before 2020 we were we were in a situation where the state's uh, eligibility system was receiving some criticism for you know enrollment changes, and so there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff up in the air for how um, Missouri's checking eligibility and uh, what that burden is for those enrolled, um, you know, whether it's too burdensome, not burdensome enough in terms of uh, 
you know, what what should qualify as responding, you know, how easy it is to send in income, stuff like that. And um, I but I do think the federal government is watching this very carefully because Missouri's not alone in checking these. And so if Missouri's um, roles start dropping too quickly, I think uh, the federal government will step in. But I do think roles will be dropping, but maybe not until 2024. All right. Well, something I know you'll be keeping an eye on and writing about at showmeinstitute.org. Switching gears a little bit, Avery, another bill that was pre-filed for this session, has to do with electric vehicle charging stations. We talked about this several times on the pod during last session, and there was a movement uh, to require businesses that are remodeling, expanding, uh, maybe adding parking lots per spaces. I think it's parking lots with over 30 spaces have to have a certain amount of charging stations. And that burden was going to fall on the business owners. Um, and this bill uh, would like that burden to fall somewhere else. So what's going on with it? This bill, HB 184, if anyone wants to look it up, it would require political subdivisions that require the installation of EV charging stations to have to pay the costs associated with it. If the government's like, hey, on Lindell, we want an EV charging station in the corner of every intersecting street, and this business, this business, this business, you're gonna have to install them, the, the government's gonna have to pay for it. They're not gonna, this bill would prevent the small business from having to foot the bill. And I'm glad that Missouri legislators looking to protect small businesses, as this is a future that seems possible with the recent pass of the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Plan, governments might be wanting to pass these kind of things more. But the thing is, I just, I wish these mandates were not occurring in the first place. Only 1% of vehicles on the road in the USA are electric vehicles, which may be hard to believe with how much attraction they're getting. And only 9% of all EV owners said charging stations were too far apart. And it's even less for Tesla owners, it's like 3%. And if you're driving EV, you're probably driving Tesla. But, I mean, just the other day I was on I-74 West driving through the farmlands, and it was getting a little dicey. I didn't know if I was going to make it to a gas station. But the fact that these numbers are so low and the statistics, I just I don't see what the red, red alert is for the government to trying to manipulate the market that's been growing rapidly through competition. If I'm a business owner and this mandate is in place, it actually seems like, to your point about competition, if I'm going to socialize the cost – of the charging station, this actually seems like a win for me as the business owner. I can say, great, uh, if I have five charging stations at my restaurant or my store that that I'm not going to have to pay for or maintain the tech, like, yeah, let, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, I mean, you're honestly right. Like, if there's not really any reason for the infrastructure to grow naturally on its own, if you can just wait for a government handout to come and make it for you, but it's just a waste of taxpayer funds. Government's picking winners, using our taxpayer dollars to build stuff that may not even be necessary in the first place. The government is not as efficient as the free market. The free market will grow, expand markets as efficiently as possible. And I mean, if I were a business owner, I'd probably take advantage of this, but I just don't think we should be footing, as taxpayers, be footing the bill to pay for other businesses' wins. Right. There are plenty of incentives for businesses to install as they grow, expand, repave, whatever, their parking lots, to put in EV charging stations. If you're a business where people come and would normally stay for an hour or so, like a restaurant or a, or a laundromat, or there's a thousand other examples, 
uh, you want your you want you can lure customers to your restaurant or your laundromat by giving them a place to charge their car while they do business in your store. If you're a mall or a shopping center or any type of place with you you have an incentive to put these in to lure customers to come to your place. I mean, this government mandate here is completely unnecessary, and I like this bill because I don't think what's going to happen is that. Your point is your point is valid that businesses will then start supporting this idea of a government mandate as long as governments have to pay for it. I think more likely governments will stop doing these mandates, especially it may be one thing for a large county, but the small cities like Brentwood doing it, you know, they may not if they have to pay for these EV stations, they may have to suddenly say, "All right, we're not going to do it." <laughs> I think that's more likely. So I think this is a, a good bill and this is just Requiring these things when many, I don't own an electric vehicle myself, but, you know, many of people who do, they've got charging stations right at their house. You know, you can't fill up your car with gas at your at your house for most people. <laughs> uh, you can fill it up, you can charge it overnight, and the market is handling this issue. There's no need for these government mandates, and I view this state bill as a pushback on those mandates, which is why I, I think it's a good idea. Okay, well, it sounds like, yeah, there's a lot of discussion to be had, and I'm sure... Avery, you'll be keeping track of it and uh, keeping us up to date. David, it sounds like the city of St. Louis is going to bring electric scooters back. To downtown. To downtown. They've only been banned in downtown. So my first question is, I know when we talked about the ban, one of the reasons given was they thought that it would reduce some crime, some rowdiness in the city. Now that they're coming back, do we have any reason to believe that there was an effect on I don't. I don't know. I don't know. St. Louis City isn't for the last... Year for the last couple of years, St. Louis City hasn't been keeping great crime stats, gen- generally speaking. So we don't we don't know a lot, but so I don't know, and it's certainly too short to know if there's been any reduction in crime with the scooter ban downtown. I don't like the scooter ban downtown. That said, I there's downtown residents association. There's various groups of residents who live there, and they put they put some videos out recently. Showing, the, for lack of a term, lack of lack of a better term, the general mayhem that can come <laughs> late at night with with scooters just running red lights and going the wrong way on the one way one way streets and and groups harassing pedestrians and other motorists. I mean, there's some pretty video. There's some pretty good videos out there, and I I'm willing to admit it's a problem, and I don't think these downtown residents are wrong when they when they say that. I I just don't know that. I just don't, I question why the scooters are the cause of that and not better downtown police presence and security presence isn't the, isn't the solution there more so than banning scooters, which have a, which have a purpose. I look, when I ride scooters downtown, it's because I go downtown for a sporting event, usually a Cardinal game park and take a scooter to the, to the ballpark. So I, I like them, but I'm sympathetic to the people who've invested enormous amounts of money, business or homes downtown and, and seeing and showing and sharing, they're not keeping it a secret, the, the general mayhem that that scooters are, I, I'm not going to say causing, but that scooters seem to be associated with. So I wish there was data on whether it, crime reduced during the brief banning of downtown scooters. I don't, if there is, somebody please email it to me at david.stokes at showmeinstitute.org, whether they're Whatever the data says, I would love somebody to share it with me or at David C. Stokes on Twitter 
because I'll certainly let that influence the judgment. But I'm still, I remain unconvinced that a that these this crime wouldn't continue just in other forms with allowing scooters, which leads us into Airbnb. The other thing we're going to talk about, <laughs> like, there's a lot of, I think there's more data, more indication that, you know, the rampant renting of Airbnbs and VRBOs and the like, the short-term rental market in downtown St. Louis is leading to fairly violent cr- criminal parties that are getting out of hand is the nicest way to put it. And I know there's people looking to pass tighter regulations on that in the city of St. Louis, but it's, that's not only a city thing. In St. Charles, certainly in Lake of the Ozarks, throughout much of Missouri, the, the limitations on what people can do to rent their own property is a great question with good arguments on both sides. And I think it is helpful to define short-term when we're having this conversation because in the city, I think some people are short-term means a day, right? People are renting out some of these Airbnbs, and like you said, having a party, and then, I mean, it can be so... Uh, it's not Absol- weeks or months. Absolutely, very, very short term. Yeah, um, like one of my like my relationships back when I was single. You're talking, <laughs> you're talking really short term. Um, so the city of St. Louis is talking about restrictions, making it uh, maybe harder for property owners to rent their uh, properties out for short term rentals. Where you look at a place like like the Ozarks, one of the tourism hotspots of the state, and they're having a very of different the whole Midwest the of the whole, whole Midwest. Midwest. Um, they're having a very different conversation about short-term rentals, right? They are. They, they passed limits on it in, in Lake Ozark itself, and I know the mayor is trying to have those limits removed. Now, that's just one city. It may share the name of the entire region, but that's just one town in the region. You've got all the unincorporated parts of the counties around the Lake of the Ozark. I mean, it's a real issue because you certainly understand this is a area, Lake of the Ozark is an area based on tourism. Like if you if you bought a house there on the lake and said what I didn't I didn't know there'd be tourists in the area like well that's sort of on you like that's that's what the area is is about and there can be different there are different arguments for tourist hotbeds like Lake of the Ozarks or and to some extent downtown St Louis and maybe some parts of the city of St Charles that are completely residential as opposed to downtown Main Street St Charles and. I'm not pulling this out anywhere. They passed regulations in St. Charles several months ago trying to place some limits on these short-term rentals, which are basically rentals up to of a weekend or a week or probably up to 30 days would be the standard legal definition, I think. But even that's going to vary. So how often should you be able to rent out the property that you own? There's certainly people... I have a lot of strong beliefs in favor of property rights, and I certainly agree that you should be able to to do those things. But even I admit that there is a reason for limits in certain instances. And I certainly sympathize with the people in downtown St. Louis who bought a condo and now all of a sudden they're living next to a party a party Airbnb with different parties every weekend with the, at best, noise and issues that arise from a wild party and at worst, the violence that seems to be happening in association with some of them. Like, I get those people asking for some type of limits on it. And it's a really, it's a really good, good, interesting debate that doesn't break down along easy partisan lines, which are the best debates often, often don't. I think that's right. And it does open up another opportunity for specifically, I'm thinking at the lake, if 
people want to build condos and whether it's an association or just the dev- if they want to market themselves as some place where as part of your agreement to buy or le- you cannot rent out short term then that opens up another opportunity for people to market themselves as here's a condo it's you know longer term rentals only so if you're sick of that short term stuff come and buy a place here absolutely and going forward i do predict that H, the often lambasted, deservedly so, HOA or Homeowners Association, that the, these are going to play a larger role in in new developments, whether they be condo, especially condo developments, but even homeowner, even typical subdivisions. I think you're going to have a lot of stronger indentures for new buildings going up, which either openly state that this is allowed, and you need to know that when you buy it, or have tighter restrictions on renting out short-term properties with H- with HOAs. And there was a there was a Supreme Missouri Supreme Court decision 4 years about 4 years ago that gave existing HOAs increased authority to change their bylaws, to change their indentures going forward. Uh, and I think you're going to see existing HOAs that didn't have limits on on rental property, be it short-term or long-term, especially short-term. I think you're going to have those existing HOAs take advantage of this Supreme Court decision and adopt new rules about it. But that doesn't apply to everywhere. That's only going to apply to places that have a homeowners association and indentures existing. Not every new building, new subdivision has that in the first place. So that's not eligible for every existing spot. But going forward, yeah, if you're building a new condo complex in Lake of the Ozarks, tightening up that indenture agreement for purchasers i think is going to be a huge part of that and i think there's going to be markets for people who don't want it at all because they buy it as an investment and they want to be able to rent it and there's going to be a market for people who want very strict rules because they want it for their the use of they and their family and friends and don't want renters and that's where the market in the long run can can address this but for current issues right now i i see i see the problem and think there's got to be some level of middle ground that can that can be found here well, I think one more thing complicating this conversation is that over the last few years, there have been a lot of uh, institutions that have bought up a lot of property in different places all over the country, and they use them as short-term rentals. So it's not just a conversation about the leadership of Lake Ozark and you know people who have one or two properties you know, or just their house. There is definitely going to be a lot of politics at play with um, institutions with a lot of money who have acquired a lot of property, and if suddenly it becomes... Uh, harder for them to use that property to make money the way that they thought, then it's it's going to be a difficult conversation with a lot of money sloshing around in it. So, absolutely. And if you're look, if you if you have your house in a, a spot that you or just owned by your neighbor, and your neighbor is renting out the property and causing problems, well, but you know your neighbor, you can go up to him and say, "Hey, Bob, you know, last weekend there was a lot of parties here. It was it was crazy, and and it, I would." Trusting how society works for the most part, you would hope that your neighbor Bob would attempt to address this somehow. And I think he many times would. But if that neighbor is a is an LLC real estate investment trust <laughs> based based out of the Cayman Islands, it's a little tougher to go to go reach him and, and bring your concerns to, to their attention. So that's a real issue, right? If you've got investors and you're a company and renting it out short-term, long-term as part of your business plan, you're not going to be as nearly caring about what you're, what you're doing to your, your neighbors in that subdivision that you just bought that house in. 
Right. Well, yeah, definitely an interesting conversation that I know that you'll be keeping track of. All right. So we will end today how we do every week. It's the start of the session. Elias, what is something that uh, you're keeping track of over the next week? Well, I'm I'm looking to keep track of uh, the committee assignments. So right now we don't know where um, all of the members of the House or the Senate are going to be um, on committees. And so uh, the composition of these committees is going to mean a lot um, regarding like the types of legislation that have, um, you know, a chance for movement this year. So I'm going to be keeping an eye on that and then seeing once those committees are set up, which bills are going there because that gives us kind of a insight into the priorities of everyone. We followed this week the speeches from you know, the Speaker of the House and Senator Rowden um, in the Senate, and we, um, you know, we'll we'll see what you know. You we say all the time, you know, you can't uh, you don't really know what people's priorities are until they start acting. So we'll we'll see what they uh, we'll see what they do, and I'm going to keep an eye on it. Avery, well, there's some. Education bills, I think, are interesting. There's an ESA expansion, which would allow parents to have more of their money for spending kids. And there's also a charter school expansion, which could help bring it to more counties outside just Kansas City and St. Louis. So hopefully that gains some traction as well. And then, of course, I'll be keeping track of my the EV bill. And David? Carthago Delendo Est. Carthage must be destroyed. For years, I hope I got that right. I probably got it wrong. Four years of high school Latin down the drain. For years, there was a Roman senator who began after the first two Punic Wars, wanted a third. So he began every speech, or he ended every speech he gave in the Roman Senate with that phrase, Carthage must be destroyed. Finally, it led to the third Punic War, and Carthage was indeed destroyed. Not that I supported that at the time. <laughs> That's how I'm going to view the defeat of land banks in, in Missouri this, this session. There's a bill to expand land banks, which have completely failed in St. Louis and Kansas City. They failed to return pro property to the private sector. They failed to expand the tax base. They've, they've enhanced cronyism, favoritism, and corruption. Three aldermen just went to jail in the city of St. Louis for bribery charges, part of which related to the St. Louis land bank. And yet there's a bill and a proposal to expand this to the rest of Missouri. Needless to say, Missouri does not need this. We do not need to expand land banks. We need to stop this land bank proposal in Missouri. It's terrible public policy. Absolutely terrible public policy. You know, when you started that, I wasn't sure where you were going, but I was pretty <laughs> confident that land banks were going to fit into it somehow. Um, I don't want to be clear. I'm not referring to Carthage, the suburb of Joplin. I'm referring to Carthage, which was in... Modern day, I believe, to, to Tunisia in the greater Libya, yep. Tunisia area. I'm, I'm glad you apologize to our many listeners from Carthage, Missouri. Right. I'm a big fan of Carthage, Missouri. Although if, if I was like Joplin High School playing Carthage in like a football game, I would have like that Carth <laughs> Carthago Delendo S like on a sign like constantly. <laughs> All right. Well, um, Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Elias, Dave, and Avery will be writing about all this and more up there. We have more episodes of the podcast. And check out the events tab to see what is coming up. Thank you all very much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.